Father in heaven, we praise you. Um, we say hallelujah, praise the Lord. You are worthy of all our praises, worthy of our worship, worthy of our heart's attention and affection. And Lord, I pray that you would bless us as we uh, now enter into this portion of our worship where your word is announced and heralded as the news which it is, of events which have happened, of a victory which has been won while we waited and while we watched. And Lord, I pray that you would bless it, that you would tune our hearts to pay attention, to love and delight in your word, to respond as the sheep of the good shepherd who hear his voice. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So when we began this journey through the book of Ruth, we saw Elimelech, we saw Elimelech take his family away from the people of God to escape a famine in Bethlehem. Elimelech joined his family with the Moabites. Elimelech dies in Moab, leaving his wife and Naomi and with her two sons. And those two men take wives who do not love the Lord God. And those sons die before they're able to have children with their wives. And Naomi is left all alone. And she says that she has been made empty by the hand of the Lord. But Naomi hears that the Lord has visited his people. He's given them bread. And so she begins to make the journey from Moab back to Bethlehem in Israel. Her daughters-in-law join her for the first part of the journey, at least. But she, she, she soon tells them to turn back and to rejoin their families, worshiping their gods back in Moab. And Orpah follows this instruction. But Ruth clings to Naomi and to the God of Israel the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who, create, who created the heavens and, and the earth and who sustains all things. Ruth clung to Naomi and to the Lord God. But Naomi's family, even now that they're back in the land of Israel, or at least she is, is in need of redemption. They have fallen into great poverty, and the inheritance of land which was given to them by the Lord generations ago is now in danger of being lost by a combination of poverty and also by having no children to pass it on, even if it was to be redeemed. There's no one in the family to hold it. They will soon have no place in the land of promise, and their name will be essentially wiped out from the land of Israel and from the people of God. But by the invisible hand of God's providence, he brings Ruth to Boaz, while neither of them were even looking for one another. And Boaz is legally, perfectly suited to legally act on behalf of Naomi's family, essentially standing in their place, if he would agree to redeem them, legally what he did, even children born to him, anything he did on that land would essentially count as if Elimelech, that dead man, had done those things. It would be credited to Elimelech and Elimelech's family. He could stand in their place legally to redeem them. And his love was great enough for him to do it. Last week, we looked at the day when Boaz married Ruth, becoming the kinsman redeemer of her and the family of her dead husband. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. But we will see, I hope that you see this with me, that even though Boaz is the redeemer, once they're married, that search for a redeemer is not over. They're now back at it, looking for, waiting for another redeemer. It continues. It simply continues the chain of hope 
of a redeemer to be born. This chain. I want, you to ask, I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of Ruth. If you're not already there, Ruth chapter 4. And we're going to begin at verse 7. Ruth chapter 4, verse 7. We'll read the first 15 verses at this point. All right. So we're going to recap a little bit about this legal ceremony in which the redemption happened. So we're going to start at verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and, and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the woman will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. We're going to end right there for now. And I wonder if you noticed that there still is the question of a coming redeemer even after Boaz has redeemed this family. Did you notice that the child born to them is actually now considered the redeemer, the next redeemer in the line of redeemers? The redeemer they're talking about is not Ruth's husband, but Ruth's son. This is clear in verse 15. Ruth is worth more than seven sons, and the redeemer that they're speaking of is not the man she marries, but the one whom she gives birth to. And this actually draws our attention to a theme that actually runs very thick throughout all of Scripture as it relates to his covenant people. The hope and prayer that God would bring them a son through whom they would be redeemed. That son would be born, and he would redeem them. One who could represent the family and act on their behalf to redeem that family from shame. Now, the first sign of this chain of longing and hope of a son to be born to redeem them, that first sign of it is found in the book of Genesis. And we've read this a number of times in this series. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Immediately after Adam's sin plunged the entire human race into sin and rebellion and death and damnation and shame, God promises to Eve that a son would be born to redeem her family. A son who would be crushed in order to crush sin and Satan. And that promise of God in Genesis 3.15, that promise sparked a continual string, a chain of hoping for a son to be born who would redeem the family of Adam. And Eve has two children. She has two sons. But she soon realized that it's not one of her first two sons, at least, because one was murdered and the other was murdered by him. Both of them were taken out by sin and death. So, okay, it's not them. But another son born to Eve's family down the line. But which one? And if you've ever read the Old Testament, you have bumped into these genealogies. These wonderful, beautiful lists of begats and names of who was the father of whom. Over and over, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so who was the father of so-and-so. On and on and on. You'll see these genealogies. And if you're not familiar with that promise that God made to Eve in Genesis 3.15, 
you might not understand why that is good and glorious and beautiful. Why that's actually a treasure securing the redemption that God planned to give. This promise of God to Eve helps answer the question of why those genealogies are included. And not only included, but placed so prominently in the word of God. Not this man, but maybe his son. Okay, not him, but maybe his son. Okay, not him, but maybe his son. On and on and on and on. Tracing the seed, the offspring, the sons of the woman. Which will be the redeemer? And then in choosing to save Noah while condemning the rest of the world, God narrowed the search down. So it has to be one of Noah's sons now. Okay. And then time goes on and and the people multiply. And then in choosing Abraham, the Lord narrowed down that search once again. Okay, it's going to be one of Abraham's sons. But not any of his sons. It's got to now be one of Isaac's sons. Okay, but not, not any of Isaac's sons. It has to be one of Jacob's sons. And Jacob's name was changed, as you know, to Israel. And the family which came from Israel would become the nation of Israel. But which of the nation of Israel's sons would be the redeemer of Israel? And so we're now witnessing the redemption of Elimelech, Naomi, and Ruth's family through Boaz, and now also the son born to them. Because if Ruth and Boaz didn't have a son, again, that family would be without redemption and would be in need of redemption. We're, being, we're witnessing them being redeemed from poverty, from a lost place in the, in, the, in the people and in the land of God. But also, as we'll see in this text, we're also witnessing not just this little family but we're also witnessing the Redeemer come to the entire nation. This, this man being born is not only keeping the redemption of that, that little family within Israel, but he is how God is going to bring the redemption to all of Israel and ultimately to all nations. Through the reign of David, Obed's son, Now, what would that redemption look like? So the people of Israel and we also are being trained to to, to know what to expect when God would redeem all of Israel and ultimately the entire world by, by things that we see in the redemption of this family. If David is going to be the redeemer, in a sense, of Israel, what ought Israel to be thankful for about David and to look forward to about David's reign. What is his reign going to do? What is the purpose of his reign? Why would God establish a king to reign over his people? They are taught what to expect through the reign of David, who is not just the kinsman redeemer, but he's also a royal kinsman redeemer, a redeemer who reigns. And we're going to be taught, as I hope you can see, to expect the people of God to expand, to enlarge, and to be brought from shame to a position of more honor and glory through the reign of the Redeemer born to Israel. Brings us to our first point, and this is that through the Redeemer, the Lord removes shame. Through the Redeemer, the Lord removes shame. And I hope that you notice the blessing of renown and fame through this passage, right? As the townspeople are proclaiming a blessing over this family, it is the blessing of renown and fame. The blessing longed for and prayed for through this redeemer, Boaz and now Obed, his son, is that God would give them a name. He would give them a good name. Literally, the phrase is to call a name. May you be called a name. In our context, that's not usually a good thing if somebody calls you a name. But in this phrase, it is to be called a name. This is a blessing. And the blessing is that they'd have a name known in Bethlehem. A a name known for good reasons. Now, why would that be a blessing that you'd pray for this family, that they'd actually want? Why is that actually a blessing? Now, I want to say this. Asking for your child to be famous and positioning their childhood so that they might become famous is one of the worst things that you could ask for. 
We think of these things in terms of mass media and celebrity and being famous, but this is not even close to what the Lord and his people had in mind when they thought of these things. To be known, to have a name that is known to the people of God, to be known amongst the people of God for good reasons, is a blessing which the Lord intends to give through a redeemer. Elimelech's name was in danger of being removed by his death from the land and people of God. The Lord knows everyone's name. And as we've said before, your name is the sum total of your life's accomplishments. It is what you have accomplished. It is your legacy. It is you and your worth, essentially, your name. And the, the people around you may not know that and may not have an accurate understanding of you. They may know your given name. They might not have an accurate understanding of your name, the things you've done, either by your thoughts or your words, your deeds. But the Lord knows it perfectly. And he knows that it is stained completely with sin and guilt and wickedness. Even your good deeds are stained with sin. And this is well known to God, even if it isn't known by your neighbors. And God is ultimately the only one who matters. This shame cannot be hidden from the Lord. And the blessing that the Lord provides in a Redeemer is the removal of shame and replacing that shame with a good name. And that's highlighted for us in the actual blessings which the women of the town pronounce upon Ruth and Boaz and Naomi and ultimately Obed. They bring up people and events from the past. Going backward in time, remember that, that whole chain of begats? They go backward into that to take up some treasure of this understanding of redemption from shame. Not just the family line of this particular family, but the, the family of, of God's people. Uh, the women they bring up are, first of all, here we're going to mention Rachel and Leah, the two wives of Israel. And they bring up Tamar, who is the daughter-in-law of Judah. All three of these women share in the redemption provided by the Lord's Redeemer. They receive a place and a good name in the redeemed family of God. They also have something else in common. The stories of all three of these women are stories of shame and sin, which preceded glory and honor. These stories are full of shame and sin, both theirs and the fathers of their children. They're embarrassing stories. Let's start with Israel, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. He's sent to find a wife who is not one of the Canaanite worshipers of Baal. He leaves his mother and father and he finds a wife. He meets Rachel, the daughter of Laban. And he immediately falls in love with her. Jacob immediately falls in love with Rachel. Rachel, she is beautiful in, in his eyes. And, and scripture also lets us know that she is also beautiful by the standards of the world. He was not the only one who thought she was beautiful. Everyone thought she was beautiful. And so they wish to marry. And Laban gives his permission so long as Jacob will work for him for seven years for free. So they have a wedding in which she's adorned as a bride and covered up with beautiful customary veils. And in the morning, Jacob wakes up to find Leah, Rachel's sister, laying next to him. Jacob is furious because he loves Rachel. And he hates Leah. And he thinks she's ugly, as does the rest of the people around them. They all agreed that Leah was ugly, and he did too. And see, Leah is added to the family of the Christ, of the Redeemer, even though its people would have chosen for her to remain outside. So Jacob then strikes a deal with his new father-in-law to do something else shameful, to take another wife. 
contrary to the design of God. And he even takes her sister. And so he spends one week with Leah, the woman he hates and thinks is ugly, treating her as a wife. The whole time looking forward to being able to be with her beautiful sister whom he actually loved. And can you imagine a more shameful situation? Rachel, the beloved wife, though, she does not conceive children. God gives children to Leah. One, two, three sons. Perhaps the Redeemer will be one of those sons. And each time she has a son, if you look back in the scripture, and I would encourage you to do so, each time she has one of these sons, these first three sons, she says something to the effect of, maybe my husband will love me now. Crushing even to think of that. Wanting her shame to be removed by her husband's affection, and it wasn't. And then a fourth son is born to Leah. And with him instead, this time she says, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and she ceased bearing. The Lord's affection in those moments were what she rejoiced in when Judah was born. Not the hope of affection from a husband who did not love her. Rachel now, the pretty and loved one, now she's experiencing shame. In a culture which a woman depended upon childbirth, she was unable to conceive. Not only that, but in Israel in particular, the redemption and continuation of God's promises, it leaned very heavily, as we noted, on potential redeemers being born. And so Rachel hatches another wicked and shameful plan. Along with her husband Jacob, in which her servant will now try to conceive a child with Jacob, a child for Rachel, as her misguided way of trying to remove shame, which she felt. And two sons are born this way. Then Leah, the hated wife, she tries the same plan, and two more sons are born. If you're keeping track, we're, we're getting up to a pretty big family at this point. And then later, one of Leah's, the hated wife, one of his sons finds some mandrakes. And, and Rachel asks, can I have one of your son's mandrakes? And Leah refuses to give them to her. Instead, she strikes a deal to grant access to Jacob in order to conceive another child. She trades that for mandrakes. And in fact, she conceives two more sons and then a daughter. So then finally, Rachel, the beloved, beautiful wife, bears a second child, but she, dies in, or, but she dies in childbirth. This is the way the 12 tribes of Israel were built up. Those sons I just listed were the 12 sons of Israel, as sons of Jacob. This sordid, sad, shameful story is the way in which Israel was built up. Much, much shame. And yet, afterward, Standing at the end of it all was a large family which was blessed by God, which would become the nation which possessed God's covenant promises, and the nation, the people, the family through which all nations would be blessed. It got there in a very shameful, sordid way, lots of shame. But it did end in blessing and glory. So now we get a sense of the blessing the people of the city proclaimed to Ruth. May the Lord make her like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May the Lord make them after their shame, not the way they were in their shame. And Boaz receives a blessing from the people of Bethlehem as well. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Surely this is a less shameful story. I assure you it is not less shameful. It is more shameful, arguably. We've just walked through the sordid events which birthed the 12 tribes, which included Judah. Judah was the fourth son of Leah, the ugly and hated wife of Israel. And remember when she was born, her eyes, only for a short time though, but when he was born, her eyes turned to the Lord's affection to cover her shame. And Judah married a woman who did not know the Lord. Judah had three sons with this woman. The first son's name was Ur. 
and he married a Canaanite woman named Tamar. Ur was so wicked in the eyes of the Lord that he simply just put him to death. Dead. No details, smote. Dead. But he had no children. And Tamar was now in the same situation as Ruth was in the book of Ruth. Ur's brother Onan had the ability to refuse to marry Tamar. He had the ability to refuse to marry her. So he was next, he was supposed to redeem her, but he did have the option to refuse to marry her. It would have come through a very public embarrassment to him. Publicly shown as a man who would not redeem his dead brother's family. A ceremony which included the woman ripping off his sandal and then in front of everybody spitting in his face. Publicly being identified as a selfish, wicked man. He had the option. Oh, but Onan didn't want to be publicly shamed. He wanted the public honor of being the man who was willing to redeem his dead brother. And so he chose the benefits of intimacy with Tamar, but he ensured that in doing so, no children would be conceived. The details are in Scripture. He didn't care enough about Tamar to seek her redemption. He didn't care enough about his dead brother Ur to seek his redemption. He cared only about his own reputation. And he was also happy to enjoy some of the benefits of marriage. And the Lord puts this wicked man to death as well. And we're meant to cheer along as this happens when he puts him to death. Tamar is still willing, after all this, she's still willing to marry another brother in this family in order to make sure that the redemption of the family can happen. She's still willing. I'll participate in this redemption. But Judah now, the dad, is now nervous that Tamar herself might be the curse. And so he's like, so what he does is, rather than, rather than telling her the truth, he makes her a promise that he has no intention of keeping. Don't remarry, stay a widow, uh, return to your family and, and wait a little longer until uh, Shela, the, the next son, is a little older. And so she goes off and she remains a widow. She doesn't remarry. She's intending to honor her dead husband's name. She has the option, but she doesn't take it. And in the meantime, Judah's wife dies. The dad of these dead men, his wife dies. And instead of seeking comfort from the Lord, Judah wickedly seeks the comfort from a prostitute. And this woman insists on payment, and he promises her a goat, but he doesn't have a goat on him. And so he provides his staff, his belt, and his signet as a pledge. Proof of purchase. And the woman conceives. But it was no strange woman. It was Tamar disguising herself as a prostitute, intentionally seeking out Judah so that she would conceive from that family. Shameful, sinful. No person in this account is without shame and sin and disgrace. Three months later, Judah has not yet paid the goat, and he receives word that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, is pregnant. And he had not yet given, and he wasn't going to, permission for Sheila to marry her. So Judah, one of the biggest hypocrites in history, as the leader of that tribe, makes a proclamation that she be burned alive. And Tamar's life is spared only when she produces Judah's signet, belt, and staff, and saying to everybody, the man to whom these things belong is the father of the child. Judah does repent. Six months later-ish, twin sons are born to Tamar. And one of those she names Perez. This is the way in which Tamar was permanently added to the covenant people, the family of Israel, the people of God. This is how she was added to the line of Judah, which became the line of Elimelech, and Boaz, and eventually of King David, and ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of these stories that I have told has the element of deep shame 
sin, and pain. But they all eventually resulted in blessing, redemption, and joy. This was a family which God not only redeemed, but continually provided big and small redemptions to. He wove redemption into the fabric of the laws and the families, as we've already seen. A family which often needed redemption from shame and guilt. And God was pleased to weave that redemption into them. Now fast forward now to Ruth, Boaz, Grandma Naomi. She's got the child Obed on her lap. And it is said of Obed, who was the newborn redeemer, may his name be renowned in Bethlehem. May he have a name which is not known for shame, but is known for glory. May he not be forgotten, and may that be for the blessing which God works in him, not the shame of his life. The Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob, is a God of redemption. He redeems people who have vast amounts of shame. Equal amounts of shame, which is ours because of our own sin, and also the shame which is caused by the sin of others committed against us. And the Lord provided his people with redeemers to redeem them from shame, to show that he, the redeemer of Israel, is a God which will redeem his people from shame. And he does this by hiding people in his name. He sets his name over the people of Israel. He covers them with his name, with his identity. Over and over as they sin and they're punished and shame covers them. The Lord redeems them and he says, it is for the sake of my name I will redeem them. He covers them with his name. He covers their shame with his name, with his identity, with his righteousness, with his unfailing love. And brothers and sisters, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and if you have repented of your sin, you are united to him. You are one with him. You are hidden in him. Your life is hidden in Christ with God. Now remember the language with which Ruth, it's described to, to, to describe Ruth from turning to the Lord her God. Remember when she leaves Moab and its gods and its people and she turns to the Lord God of Israel. Remember that poetic language which is used to describe that? Remember? She took shelter in the wings, in the shadow of his wings under him, covered by the Lord, the God of Israel. And we've looked at what that means. It's so full. That imagery is so full of the imagery of redemption. That means she's protected from enemies. We've also looked at how it shields her from punishment, how the Lord God eventually will take her punishment. It'll hit him as he covers her on the cross. But there's more to this redemption, which is signaled by hiding under the shadow of his wings because he covers our shame, our nakedness with his glory, with his name of Israel, the Lord said that he set his name on them. And his glorious name replaces our shameful names and reputation, the things which we've done. And on the cross, before being damned and punished for us, Christ took on himself our shame. Now, there is an emotional and also spiritual pain which comes with shame, isn't there? Physical pain is not the only kind of pain that counts. Shame is often worse. I imagine there have been times where you feel that kind of pain and you say, I would gladly take physical pain over this kind of pain. The shame. And when the Lord Jesus stood in our place, taking our shame, he didn't just leave us with a, a blank slate, an empty record, but he then replaced our shame with his own glory and righteousness he replaced our shame with his name. And his name renowns not just in Bethlehem, where he was born, but outward from Bethlehem to the ends of the earth. And brothers and sisters, and that's why we can rejoice 
that we have, if we belong to Christ, we can rejoice in the privilege of praying to God in the name of Christ. It's not a secret password. Just tag that on. It's, it's like a, a password to get in. No, 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 no. Praying in Jesus' name means you say, I had much shame. Please do not accept this prayer based on me and my name. My only hope that this prayer will be heard is that I am covered by the name, the glory, accomplishments, and righteousness of Christ. I'm hidden in him, and so hear my prayers not as I deserve, but as he deserves. Now, our shame often prevents us from drawing near to God. And perhaps it's the fear that God, too, will treat us as unusable, unprofitable. What have I done for him? Leah's shame was that she didn't provide the beauty that Jacob desired. Rachel's shame was that she didn't provide the children which Jacob desired. And brothers and sisters, if your prayers are offered in faith in the name of Jesus, then the full, accomplish, the full weight of his accomplish, accomplishments and glory and his name are attached to all of those prayers. You will be able to think of thousands of reasons why God should deny your prayer. But you will not think of one if the name of the Lord Jesus is covering it. Now perhaps that shame which keeps you or pulls you to not draw near to God is the shame of sins committed against you. Tamar felt that deeply, so did Rachel and Leah. All three of them felt that kind of shame. And the Lord redeems and replaces that kind of shame with the glory of his own name. Think of the redemption he worked for the people of Israel as he rescued them from Egypt. They were known as the slaves of Pharaoh. Not for much longer. They will be known as the people of the Lord who redeemed them and destroyed Pharaoh. So you are not known now as the woman whom so-and-so did this or that to. That is not who you are. You are known by the glorious and wonderful name of Christ. You are Christ's brother or sister if you trust in him. That is who you are and that is your name. He says he gives a new name to you. Now perhaps the shame is the, is the, is the kind of shame that comes from the, the sin that you have committed. The Lord Jesus Christ bore that shame on the cross as well. He became sin. He became a curse. In Isaiah 53, hundreds of years, written hundreds of years after Ruth and hundreds of years before Christ, the, 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 the anticipated redeemer of Israel is described in this way, Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This is the idea of a name, a shameful name. You esteem him not. You have this negative esteem of him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him smitten, smitten by God and afflicted. See, the ultimate redeemer which the Lord provided his people was one who took our shame and exchanged it for his name. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. And that's why the focus of the title redeemer moved from Boaz to his son Obed and then from Obed to his son and then so on and so on and so on. This would continue a chain of redeemers always looking for another until a redeemer would be born who would redeem the shame of his people once and for all. Which brings us to our second point. Through the redeemer, the Lord redeems a vast family. Now, included in the blessings pronounced on this family, this small family of Boaz, Ruth, Obed, and Naomi, was the blessing of becoming large. There's one child there. That's a stretch. 
Not just one whose shame would be redeemed and replaced with glory, but a large family. We've already seen this in the redemption of Leah and Rachel. The result was a large family. Now, why is that so important? It was certainly common in those days to long for a large family. Lots and lots of kids. Partly to make up for the fact that you could count on a large portion of those kids dying before they turned five. Partly it was to help with the wealth of the family. Every child would contribute to the work. Partly it was to help with safety. Safety in numbers. More sons with bows and arrows and swords means less of a threat from another family group. But these were not the reasons why this mattered in the eyes of the Lord. It is because the Lord intended to redeem not a small people, but a vast people. He wanted to be the redeemer of many people. He would be known and enjoyed as the redeemer of a multitude, too many to number. Just like counting the sand of the seashore or counting the stars. And many years before Ruth met Boaz, his ancestor Jacob traveled from his home in search of a wife who would not be of the idol-worshipping families of Canaan. And we've already seen how that led him to Rachel and Leah. But on the way to them, the Lord spoke to him in a dream, promising that he would enlarge his family, his people. At that point, it was only one. Just him. But the promise of God was a people through Jacob who would be too vast to number. We can read this in Genesis 28. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for you will not leave until I have done what I have promised you. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. It is critical to remember that when the Lord selected Israel, when he elected her, when he chose her, the people through whom he would bring redemption to all nations, it had nothing to do with their size. They were small, even down to one person a few times. But it would be by his might and redemption that would make him the redeemer of a vast family. Not because he chose a vast family, but because he made his redeemed people a vast one. So it wasn't simply about the survival that Leah and Rachel bear children. It was God keeping his promises he made to Jacob. And through those 12 sons, the Lord began to form a large family and even a nation. The Lord's intention was to bring a kinsman redeemer, a son who would be the firstborn of many brothers. We've already seen that the Lord Jesus Christ, the son born to Israel through the line of Judah, Onan, Tamar, Shelah, Elimelech, Boaz, Ruth, Obed, and so on, the heir of Judah is the redeemer not only of Elimelech's family, but of the whole household of God. God who could have redeemed none. Redemption is by grace alone. No one could have demanded that another man offer to take his place in hell. But that is exactly what Christ freely chose to do for his people. God's redemption has never been limited to a worthy people or those without sin or shame. We've seen that. It includes those people. And he could have redeemed none. He could have redeemed a few, but he didn't. In Romans 8, 28 to 29, we read, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God the Father's plan was to glorify God the Son by presenting him as the kinsman redeemer of many siblings a vast household made up of undeserving, shameful people from every tribe and tongue and place. Consider the redemption of Ruth, worked by Boaz last week. Consider, remember how that unnamed redeemer refused to redeem one family because the cost was too great. Now consider that for every single member of the vast, countless household of God that Christ redeemed, He bore every bit of shame and hell and damnation and pain and rejection and judgment and punishment for every single individual member of that family. Taking an eternity's worth of hell for one person would be too much. Imagine the weight 
of taking an eternity's worth of hell for millions. And notice how the woman of Bethlehem called Obed Naomi's son, even though she didn't bear him. Here she's delighting in the born, the, the child born to be her redeemer. He is hers. The child is born to her. Christ is born to us, to be our redeemer, the redeemer of a vast multitude, and he will get the glory of not just saving one person, not just taking an eternity's worth of hell and damnation for one person, but taking that for millions and millions and millions. What glory and honor and blessing does that man deserve? He deserves the name above all names. And if you count that incredible cost, the only thing explains his willingness to do it is his incredible, unmatched, steadfast love for that bride which he redeemed. And if you have repented of sin and trusted in Christ, you are not left without a son born to redeem you. The Lord has not left you without a redeemer. You are not left without a redeemer. But friends, if you're not in Christ, if you're not trusting in Christ's death and resurrection, you are without a redeemer. You are still in your shame. You will face God on your own merits and according to your own sin. You will not be covered by the name and glory and righteousness of Christ and you will not stand. And notice how our text in Romans ends, though. Christ will be the firstborn among many, right? Of all who are predestined, all who are elected by sheer grace, regardless of their shame, he will certainly bring them to glory. This idea of certainty, he will bring them to glory. They will certainly be glorified with his glory because he certainly was damned to, and covered there with their shame. And how can, he, how can this certainly happen? There's no can or may in those words, but perfect, certain language. Those, the whole vast number, those whom he predestined, he also glorified. And how can he be so sure that that happens? Here's why. Because he will reign perfectly and sovereignly and accomplish the calling and mandate given to him by his Father. It is because he, we can be certain that those whom were elected will be glorified, covered by his glory, because the Redeemer will reign. That brings us to our last point. Through the Redeemer's reign, the Lord insists his will will be done. Do you remember the beginning of this series, the book of Ruth, we took a quick left turn right after the first verse. We left immediately to head to the book of Judges. For the first verse tells us that these things happened during the days of Judges. With all the struggles and problems and blessings along with them, essentially saying this is going to work to solving the problems we saw in the book of Judges. Well, so we looked. What is this? And Judges tells us of an era for the household of God where they had their land. They had promised their land. They had God's laws. They had God's promises. They were a vast multitude. But they were without a particular gift from God and by which they could better walk according to those things. In Judges, we read the refrain, I hope you remember, in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now we're going to read together how the book of Ruth ends. 16 to 22. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the, the women of, their of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then we end with a genealogy. Now these are the generations of Perez. Remember Perez? Tamar's son, born through prostitution. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered, fathered Salmon. 
Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. King David. Genealogies in Scripture, these lists of names, one after another, of one family redeemer to the next family redeemer, and on and on. Hundreds of years in the span of what takes seconds to read. Genealogies in Scripture are a demonstration, a flex of God's sovereign reign over all men, women, kingdoms, families, miscarriages, unwed mothers, family shame, strong men, weak men, widows and widowers, single people longing to be married, admirable women, shameful women, pandemics, painful attacks, panic attacks, thefts, wars, cancer, closed wombs, open wombs, and all of the things. The genealogies of Scripture are a demonstration of God's sovereignty over all those things. Hundreds of years in the span of what takes to say a second. In a second. It's a demonstration of a reign which endures over the span of the lives of many people. All of whom knew either none or perhaps a small part of the plan. The genealogies, we see his powerful hand and reign over all history. Why? What is he doing with history? What is he doing with this genealogy? How is he using his might and his power to control history, to bring it to what? What is the answer to that question? To put a son of Eve's on the throne and reign on God's behalf. He will put a son of Eve's on the throne to reign on God's behalf. To reign, meaning not to only suggest that God's will be done, to advise it, to hope for it, but to insist that it is done. And so we see a major part of God's plan fulfilled here. David is the king whom God sovereignly worked in history to bring to the throne of Israel so that he could insist God's will be done. He had that sovereignty to insist that it be done. And David was the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and Elimelech and Malon, the son of Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah, son of Israel, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of moving way back, son of Eve. The first woman to be promised that a redeeming son would be born to her. So David was Eve's son, Adam's son, Ruth's son, reigning on behalf of God to insist that the will of God be done, and also now insisting on redemption of his people, insisting that God's people were secure and provided for, not suggesting, but insisting. And what God did through David's reign was marvelous for the household of God, but David too had sin. David's life was snuffed out by death. Through David, God covered much of Israel's shame and she became a great and glorious nation, the nation of the God of Israel. He put his name and glory on her through the reign of David. He covered shame and made it glorious. A vast people. But David's life was snuffed out by death. If only David had a son who could carry out his reign and fulfill what he failed to do during his reign, the way that Obed could stand in Elimelech's place and fulfill what Elimelech failed to do with his life. Now you turn to the genealogies of Jesus of Nazareth and you see that he was that son. We read earlier that the Son of God leaving heaven and, and taking on human nature to become our Redeemer, but our kinsman Redeemer. And in Philippians chapter 2, Brother Caleb read that for us. Philippians 2 that tells us that when Jesus was born to be, remember, he's always God, he's always the Redeemer of Israel, but he was born to become her kinsman Redeemer, qualified to do things on her behalf, in her name. And what does Philippians 2 tell us about the form that he assumed when he was born to fulfill what the family of God failed to accomplish? Oh, a servant. Obed was also born to redeem the family of Elimelech and Boaz. 
to fulfill what they failed to accomplish in their lives and to do it in their place. His name was Obed. Wouldn't it surprise you to know that Obed's name means servant? Jesus came to stand in the place of all the family of God whom he was born to redeem. To do what we failed to do in what our families, in our lifetimes, sorry. And to pay for what we did in our lifetimes. To remove our shame by bearing it on the cross. And this time, the son of Ruth was a man. David, or sorry, Jesus was essentially the son of Ruth. And he was a man. He was a son of Eve in that sense. But unlike David, he was also God. And so God's plan to put a son of Eve, son of Abraham, son of Ruth, son of Boaz, son of David on the throne was finished. But he would also be God the Son. Now why is that better? of all the wonderful things that God did through the reign of David, where he could insist that the household of God be redeemed and shame be turned from glory. He could insist on that. Being God, Jesus can't just insist on it. He can ensure it. Because he is perfectly sovereign. People, it's not simply that people ought to do and that his, his rule and his will ought to be followed, as David's was as the king. But being God, Jesus' will will certainly be accomplished. He doesn't just hope for it. He doesn't suggest it. He doesn't even just insist on it. He does it. And so Israel's hope was now shaped, not simply in a kinsman redeemer, but in a royal kinsman redeemer who will reign to enlarge the family of God and to remove her shame and to replace it with glory and to have sovereignty to insist on it. And this is what David did in part. But David had a son who could stand in his place and fulfill what was lacking in his own lifetime. Who doesn't just insist that his family's shame be covered by his glory, but who makes sure it happens. So repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or you will be crushed by his reign. He doesn't just insist that people obey his reign. He will ensure it. Turn to him in faith and exchange your sin and shame and guilt for the gift of being covered by the shadow of his wings, his name and glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for, we thank you that you've not left us without a redeemer. And as Naomi rejoiced to see that, that redeemer, that little redeemer on her lap, that a child was born, a son was born to her, was given to her, and you had not left her without a redeemer, Lord, we rejoice even more so that you have not left us without a redeemer because we are a people with great shame. And you are a God of great glory. And side by side, our shame is even more shameful because of your, the greatness of your glory. It exposes it for what it truly is. And so, Lord, all hopes of explaining it away when we meet you in your glory face to face are eliminated. But thank you that you have provided us a redeemer who took our shame and gives us his name, covers us with his glory. And Lord, we are grateful to be included, to be numbered in that multitude that Christ will be glorified for saving. And Lord, we are grateful that Christ is not simply a hopeful, well-meaning redeemer, but that there is not one rogue molecule. And he'll bring his church to glory.
Help us to live as citizens of that king, of brothers, as brothers and sisters of that redeemer, as your children, to renounce all ridiculous ideas of living in rebellion against you. We pray that by your spirit you would work that in us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.